Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Irish Mythology Podcast. I am Marcus O'Hishkeen. And I'm Stephanie Nihirni. And we're delighted that you could join us today on our first steps on what we hope will be a memorable journey. On the way, we'll travel to magical locations, invisible islands, worlds below the ground and above the clouds. We'll meet powerful deities, mythical beasts and mischievous fairies. We'll encounter mighty warriors, druids, witches, demons, saints and scholars. And hopefully they'll be kind enough to let us tell their tales without too much malevolent interference. But we'll also meet ordinary folk like ourselves and yourselves who have had extraordinary experiences encountering the divine, the sometimes demonic and the quite often mischievous beings of the Irish otherworld. So this is the Irish Mythology Podcast and we'll talk about myths, folklore, place lore, the stories and legends of Ireland from both the distant and recent past and everything in between. Um, we'll draw from various sources including the Dinshenkis, sagas, pseudo-histories, the National Folklore Collection among others and we'll include all our resources in the show notes along with ways you can get in touch with us and we'll also do that at the end of today's show. We will also have a Patreon, so you can have a chance to support the Irish Mythology podcast. In our Patreon, we'll be providing bonus content, extra episodes, and a chance to chat with us directly about any of the content in our shows. In the Irish Mythology podcast, we'll be bringing you shows on the great sagas, like the Tawn Bo Cúlnia, the Cattle Raid of Cooley, featuring characters such as Cúchulainn and Queen Maeve. We'll retell stories of how the Irish landscape was formed by gods and mythical beings, creepy tales involving fairies, ghosts and phantom beasts. We'll get to know the gods our ancestors worshipped and your financial support will allow us to bring these stories to you. And we think it's important that these stories are kept alive, not just in the university archives or on the internet, but in the way they were originally passed from generation to generation. It's in the telling of these tales orally as they were originally intended that they come to life and like efforts to preserve the Irish language, reviving our interest in air mythology and folklore gives us a deeper connection to the ecology of the land we live on. It gives us a spiritual connection to our ancestors through knowing not just what they believed but what entertained them. It shows what they feared and what they desired above all else and what their values were. But in the meantime, if you like today's show, Give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast service you use to ensure that we reach a wider audience. Now, let's get back to the show. So, given the week that's in it, we're going to be looking at a character who bridges the gap between history and myth. A character in whose name this coming Tuesday, many glasses will be raised and even more shamrocks will be drowned. We're talking, of course, about the patron saint of Ireland, the man credited with converting Ireland from native polytheism to Christianity, and that's St. Patrick. Now, it isn't so much the veracity of Patrick's own story that concerns us today, but his place in myth and folklore. The only contemporary account of his life and his mission is his own work, the Confessio, and to a lesser extent his epistles. But in later stories, Patrick perform performs acts of magic. He confronts a pagan deity recast as a demon. He meets ancient survivors from the fabled warrior band, the Fina. He banishes serpents from the whole island and he becomes associated with the shamrock, um, which is a three-leafed plant that was to become, alongside the harp, a famous symbol of Ireland. So, um, Steph, tell us a bit about the famous Patrick. So, St. Patrick is one of Ireland's most well-known saints, if not actually 
the most well-known of the entire catalogue of Irish saints. Um, he's one of the most well-known characters associated with Ireland throughout the world. And there are parades celebrating him in, in New York, in Tokyo, Moscow and Montserrat, uh, all over the shop really. And there aren't very many figures from this neck of the woods that can claim exactly that level of celebration. The image of Patrick holding the staff and shamrock is really well known. Uh, but we're going to ask today, how much store should we actually put in that image itself? We're going to ask, did Patrick really convert pagan Ireland to Christianity? Did Patrick do it by using a shamrock? And um, what exactly was the story with the snakes? So uh, to begin, St. Patrick was almost certainly a real historical figure who was, in, who was instrumental in the conversion of the Irish uh, from paganism to Christianity. However, pockets of Christianity did actually exist in Ireland before his mission. And historical consensus seems to place this mission sometime in the 5th century CE. So Patrick was born in Britain, so the story goes, and he was abducted by Irish pirates and sold as a slave. So uh, St. Patrick, or Patricius, as he called himself, wrote an autobiographical account of his life, which you mentioned, the Confessio. My name is Patrick. I am a sinner, a simple country person, and the least of all believers. I am looked down upon by many. My father was Calpurnius. He was a deacon. His father was Potitus, a priest who lived at Banavem, Tabernae. His home was near there, and that is where I was taken prisoner. I was about 16 at the time. At that time, I did not know the true God. I was taken into captivity in Ireland along with thousands of others. We deserved this because we had gone away from God and did not keep his commandments. We would not listen to our priests who advised us about how we could be saved. The Lord brought his strong anger upon us and scattered us among many nations, even to the ends of the earth. It was among foreigners that it was seen how little I was. So Patrick was really emboldened by his newfound faith and he started to come to terms with his life in Ireland. He learned the Irish language and he became accustomed to the native culture. He spent his time tending to sheep and praying up to 100 times a day. And then one night while he slept, I heard a voice saying to me, you have fasted well. Very soon you will return to your native country. Again, after a short while, I heard someone saying to me, Look, your ship is ready. It was not nearby, but a good 200 miles away. I had never been to the place, nor did I know anyone there. So I ran away then and left the man with whom I had been for six years. It was in the strength of God that I went. God who had turned the direction of my life to good. I feared nothing while I was on the journey to that ship. And so Patrick escaped captivity and made his way back to his home in Britain. No longer a godless boy at this point, uh, but a new man devoted to his faith. It was this devotion that encouraged him to later return to the land of his captivity in Ireland. And when he returns, 
he comes this time as a bishop with the mission to convert the heathen Irish from paganism to Christianity. But even in Patrick's account of his mission that's in the Confessio, the lines between history and myth are blurred. And this is way before a single snake is even mentioned. The story in the Confessio is that Patrick spent this period of captivity tending sheep prior to reflecting on his faith and his escape. And after this, we hear about wandering in the wilderness and tests of faith and temptation. And there are a mix of themes in this work, but it actually lacks much of the detail about the thing which he is most famous for. And that is the historical conversion of the Irish population to Christianity. Now, it's pretty much what you would expect from the life story of a prophet. Wandering and reflection and temptation are very common biblical tropes. And I know from talking about this with you before that you think that these are most likely greatly exaggerated, if not completely fabricated. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing just fits too neatly into the standard prophet biography. I don't know whether it's a controversial thing to to say, but, you know, you can draw analogies with St. Peter, Moses, even Christ himself, and it fits into the classical hero myth structure as well. You know, getting the call to adventure, refusing the call, some drastic life event giving you that extra push to accept it, going out into a strange world on an adventure and returning home with the spoils. Um, I mean, for anybody with, a, with an interest in that, I'm going to go into more detail on, on the Patreon, but um, generally, like you, if you think of you know the classical hero myths, Jason and the Argonauts, um, Odysseus, you think of those um, prophets and saints, you think of even modern stuff like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, Luke Skywalker, mm. Superman, they all have that kind of structure. Um, and, and it's those mythic properties that would have given some legitimacy to Patrick's mission, uh, both to the native Irish nobility, who put great store in the Tua and the extended family, you know, the Tua, which was the extended family and tribe. And within the church itself, where the idea of apostolic succession was important. So, yeah, I do think it's way too convenient just to, to be completely true, you know. And life events such as receiving instructions directly from God, um, escaping captivity via the long trek through the wilderness, these are pure Moses. And though instead of leading a whole people to freedom, it's just himself and the sailors he converts on the way back to Britain, his separation from a noble lineage bears a resemblance to Jesus, who was born in a manger into the family of a carpenter, but was of the royal line of David. And, you know, like Jesus, Patrick has to defend himself against some accusations from powerful priests and bishops. These, this um, is part of the confessio, and it's what the, the confessio is, his defence against these accusations. But the details of what they are are quite vague. You know, it's almost as if they were made up. Who knows? Um, but... Um, and I think, you know, it's maybe prescient in, in a time when the entire world is um, obsessed with um, Jamila Jamel and her B story, you know, that, you know, the, it, this didn't start with celebrities today. This has been going on for centuries and millennia. So what do we think Patrick is most famous for? So if you ask anyone in Ireland what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of St. Patrick, 
um, aside from Paddy's Day itself and pints and, and Temple Bar and all of that and parades, they're probably going to talk about snakes and shamrocks. Um, the popular belief regarding the shamrock is that St. Patrick used th- this uh, three-leafed plant to explain the Holy Trinity to the native Irish who were pagans. Um, and what he meant by that was that it, it represented three persons, as in the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit making up one God. And it's important to note that it does seem strange that Patrick would have had to explain that using a shamrock in the first place, because Irish mythology is already very heavily laden with triple deities and gods and goddesses and other figures who appear in various forms. So this wouldn't have been an unusual idea to the pagan population at the time. Now, the the origin of the shamrock story is actually pretty hazy. So the first written record of the shamrock occurs in 1726, while the first depiction of the sham of St. Patrick holding a shamrock is from a coin and that's dated from 1675. And then in, in 1681, an Englishman, Thomas, Thomas Dinley, writes. The 17th day of March yearly is St. Patrick's, an immovable feast when the Irish of all stations and conditions wear crosses in their hats, some of pins, some of green ribbon, and the vulgar superstitiously wear shamrogues, leaved grass, which they likewise eat, they say, to cause a sweet breath. So it's possible the story had been passed down orally before 1726, but the evidence or the, the lack thereof of evidence does point to the Shamrock Association being a relatively early modern invention. Interestingly, uh, though it's possibly coincidental, the 1680s saw the beginning of theological debates between, between staunch um, Trinitarians and Unitarians that just might be relevant to this. So the Trinitarians were defenders of the idea of the Holy Trinity and those who would eventually go on to be called Unitarians were the ones who believed that God was indivisible and that that the Trinity constituted a form of uh, crypto-polytheism. And that basically means that they thought that the Trinity was a sort of pagan worship of multiple gods almost. Um, So these debates sharpened in the early 1700s, and the 1719 Salters Hall Conference was on this very matter, and that was seven years before the first written record of the story of Patrick using the shamrock to explain the Trinity. Uh, So this era saw controversial heated debates on the topic that would have been discussed throughout the Reformed churches in Britain and Ireland. Um, And some of those early commentators considered the shamrock a Paddy's Day custom for the lower classes, really. Now, perhaps it's an old folk tradition associated with that time of year, or maybe a parish priest actually did use it to explain the Trinity to his parishioners. Or maybe the contemporary debates among Christians at that time and, uh, you know, the debates on the nature of God were an influence. Uh, Or or maybe it was a bit of all of the above or none of the above. Um, We just don't know. But we do know that it's become firmly embedded in the folklore of St. Patrick and that in many places in Ireland, 
uh, now have stories connected to the shamrock. So it said that the first shamrock grew on the hill of Tara and uh, that you should drown the shamrock in whiskey on St. Patrick's Day for good luck. Uh, there's also a really interesting story showing the power of the shamrock associated with a place called Manula or Manila in County Mayo. I'm not quite sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but this is collected on the Duchess website. So local lore has it uh, that one day St. Patrick was passing through and stopped at a house and asked for a drink, as you do. Um, and he was refused at this house. So he went on to a castle and set up a tent outside. And he left his boots outside the tent and went to sleep. But when he woke up, they'd been stolen. Probably happened to many a person who was in a tent at a lecture picnic. Uh, but anyway... Poor old St. Patrick wasn't pleased with this and allegedly this is the reason that the shamrock has never grown in that part of Mayo since and because it's said that St. Patrick cursed the village to be poor and proud till the end of time. Now this sort of contradicts with another story I came across in the research in which St. Patrick converts all the locals in that area and blesses the ground until the end of time. So really we'll probably never know for sure where the importance of the shamrock came from but one thing is clear and that's it, that it's here to stay yeah, that that um mayo story is interesting because they've had uh, quite a bit of bad luck with curses you know to steal curse on the mayo gaa football <laughs> team that they won't win in all ireland until is it the last member of the 1950s team dies or something yeah that's that's held firm so you know, they have Poor Mayo. Yeah. <laughs> but um, unlike Patrick's association with the Shamrock, the story of how he drove the serpents out of Ireland is not generally believed to be literally true. Um, although I'm pretty sure it was taught that way when I was in primary school, but I um, don't think anyone believed it. So the popular consensus seems to be that it is a metaphor for driving the Druids, or at least their religion, from these shores. Um, a completely unfounded version of the story states that these druids were snake worshippers, but there's neither textual nor archaeological evidence that snake worship was ever a thing here. Um, it's unlikely for the same reason that the literal version of the story is, and that's that there were never any snakes in post-glacial Ireland. It should also be noted that the first written version of an Irish saint driving out serpents was written in the late 7th century and it referred to St. Columba, not Patrick. Controversy. <laughs> there <Sorry>. you go. <laughs> um, I hope you don't have to pay royalties to um, the estate of Prince. <laughs> Moving on. In his excellent book, um, St. Patrick Retold, Roy Fletchner describes how in the 8th century, an English churchman and writer called the Venerable Bede, you may have heard of him. Class uh, name. Class, great name, yeah. <laughs> uh, he took a paragraph from a second century manuscript uh, concerning an island off the coast of Gaul, um, modern-day France, for anyone that doesn't know. And this island was snake-free, and without context, he just dropped this into his depiction of Ireland, a bit like if you copy and pasted something today from Wikipedia. Um, so maybe the snakes were a metaphor for Irish heathenry, but it's possible that the knowledge in Bede's time that Ireland was a snake-free zone presented an opportunity to contemporary theologians to make um, make myth regarding Patrick or Columba banishing a traditional symbol of evil from the island. So, you know, in the story of Genesis, the serpent is the one who tempts Eve to take the apple that gives her knowledge and 
some for some reason that's a bad thing but anyway interestingly enough the story uh, there is a story concerning one of the old gods banishing um, saints from the country it comes from the metrical Dinshankus, a series of poems often maligned so i think they're deadly um, describing how the landscape of ireland was formed and how places got their names all through the filter of irish mythology why is the Dinshankus maligned I don't know, I think they're, people just think they're a bit complicated and um, hard to fathom, but I think, you know, they're, they're not really. You just need to not try too much to understand them, you know. It's like, you know, um, just flow over the surface of the words and, um, you know, be the words. Sorry, I'm getting a It bit. sounds like Ulysses. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's not going to entice certain cohort people yeah. anyway. However, um... So the influence of Christian scribes, the influence of Christian scribes, even, uh, is plain to see in the Dinshankus. They're probably the result of pre-Christian oral source material. Uh, their tales of the landscape being formed by pagan gods and other mythical beings chimes very much with other old non-Christian mythologies. So in the Norse tradition, gods fighting ice giants carved out of valleys and and Thor's hammer. Uh, I, Mjolnir Mjolnir thank you uh, they, on flattened mountains so in in this poem uh, the Dian uh an ancient Irish god of healing and the chief physician to the gods does some serpent slaying of his own uh, this poem dates from around the 11th or 12th century but the story would have been around a lot longer than that and in it he t- uh, it talks about how the Barrow River was made and the Barrow is known as one of the three sisters, along with the River Shur and Noor. And the Dean Kecht poem outlines how he destroyed three serpents he found in the heart of the warrior Mehi and threw their ashes into the River Barrow. Um, so Do you want to read this part? I think we should <clears throat> read this part. I think it's... Um, well, it's it, very long, but... I'm, it is. Okay. Sure, like, go for it. The barrow, enduring its silence that flows through the folk of old Alva, a labour it is to learn the cause whence is called barrow, flower of all famous names. No motion in it made the ashes of Mehi, the strongly smitten. The stream made sodden and silent past recovery the fell filth of the old serpent. Three turns the serpent made. It sought out the soldier to consume him. It would have wasted by its nature all the kin of the indolent hosts of ancient Aaron. Therefore, the Jeancacht slew it. There was rude reason for clean destroying it, for preventing it forever from wasting above every resort from consuming utterly. Known to me is its grave where he cast it, a tomb without walls or roof tree. Its evil ashes, no ornament to the region, found silent burial in noble barrow. So, in the prose version of the story, Mehi is the son of the Morrigan, a goddess of war, sovereignty and possibly death. Uh, he, he has three hearts and in each heart contains a serpent. Um, so the story diverges from the poetic version in that it, it has uh, a different similarly named character, Makkech, who kills Mehi and, just, and, and thus the snakes. And he throws the ashes of the young warrior into the river Barrow. So the Barrow is known as the Burba, the Burva in Old Irish, which means boiling. And when the ashes are thrown in, the river boils 
and it is written that the death of Mehi was necessary for if the serpents lived, they would have consumed him and everything else in Ireland. So we see the number three is really important here. This recurs again and again in Irish mythology. Um, and, and also we see the number three having importance with the shamrocks. Uh, but we also see the importance of driving out snakes. So it seems that um, Della Sol were right. Three is the magic number. <laughs> for, for, for an island without snakes, we have an awful lot of stories about them. So while the story of Patrick and the snakes could just be based on Judeo-Christian tropes, the example from the Dinshankas suggests a possible earlier import for serpent mythology. While no snakes migrated from the continent to our shores, all of our ancestors at some point came from somewhere else. And we were always a seafaring people and that had trading links all along the Atlantic seaboard from Scandinavia to North Africa and all along the length of the Mediterranean where serpent myths abound. And if you've been to Crete on your holidays, you might be familiar with the Minoan snake goddess figurine in the Archaeological Museum in Heraklion, dating from around 1600 BCE. And there are two constellations that are, you know, roughly resemble serpents and their serpents and hydra which have their own stories in greek mythology um, asclepius killed serpents before he was re- resurrected by another snake and this act allowed asclepius to bring back people from the dead so in indian astrology you have um, nakshatras and one of these is ashlesha which is a coiled serpent and it roughly um, corresponds to hydra So we see that even before the Judeo-Christian hegemony, uh, the ability to control and banish serpents was seen as a great um, sign of great power and even divinity. And there's also Gansia stories passed down in the form of oral folk tales that uh, cast Patrick as the main character. And some of these are truly bizarre. And using today's pop culture terminology, you could almost call them fan fiction. Um, Some of these stories can be found on Dukas.ie, and we'll put that link in the show notes, but it's a great resource. And this one comes from the schools collection at Templorum, Templorium, uh, Piltown, County Kilkenny, under the title Funny Stories. One day, as St. Patrick was travelling from Waterford, he arrived at a castle called Granny Castle. As he was passing by the gate, he saw a man standing at the gate. The man spoke to St. Patrick kindly, and after a while he invited St. Patrick into dinner. St. Patrick went with the man to dinner. As St. Patrick was sitting down to dinner, two greyhounds jumped off the plate and ran out the door. Every man the hounds met or passed was bitten and would sadly die shortly afterwards. And that's the entire story. It's a bit strange, isn't it? Mm, It's very strange. And if you only had that to go on, you'd be wondering if there was more to it or at some point, um, you know parts of the story were lost or if it had some local significance that you have to be there to get you know and um but we have another version this next one was uh written down in ringville which is also in kilkenny and it's probably the original version of the tale or at least a lot closer to the original than the one we just heard and it's still a kind of a strange tale but it makes more sense than the previous version when St. Patrick was travelling to Ossory for the purpose of building churches, convols and cities, he came to this beautiful elevation called Conavuige, Davidstown. 
And being struck by the beauty of the prospect and the amenity of the place, he came to the resolution of building there a cathedral and city, which he afterwards, for reasons which will presently appear, placed at Waterford. He employed labouring men to dig the foundations of the cathedral and houses and masons to build them, and continued the work with cheerfulness and vigour for some days. At last, a pagan woman out of Balancra, it is supposed that she was the ancestress of Nicholas Bacco, the Garson Balve and Swaney Rickby, came to him with an offering of a dish of roasted meat for his dinner, which St. Patrick received with many grazagams. On uncovering the dish, he did not like the look of the meat and thought he saw the paw of an unclean animal. He was immediately struck with nausea and kneeling upon the next stone to him, he laid his two hands over the roasted animal in the dish in the form of a cross and prayed to God to restore whatever animal it was to its original life and shape. And lo, he had no sooner finished his prayer that a yellow hound, Kun Vui, started into life and leaping out of the dish, ran in the direction of Waterford. St. Patrick was struck with a disgust and horror at the sight, and turning to the workmen, he said in a solemn voice, Pursue and kill that hound, for she will kill every man and beast which she will meet in her course. The men pursued her with their spades and pickaxes, and overtaking her on the lands of Freenerie, about a mile to the east of the place when she started, succeeded in killing her there. There they buried her, and over her grave a small stunted white thorn bush is now to be seen, called Shkihin the Gone, the little thorn of the hound. The stones near the bush are impressed with the marks of the greyhound's feet, and one of them exhibits the figure of the greyhound in miniature. Well, that makes a lot more sense than the first version, but I was um, really rooting for the hound there. Um, it was obviously the poor creature was obviously driven mad from the experience of dying and being resurrected and but you'd think if Patrick could pull off that miracle he'd been able to calm the animal but anyway is that the whole story you'd think (laughs) uh no there's there's actually a little epilogue which I will read so on consequence of this ominous occurrence St Patrick abandoned the project but erected a heap of stones as a memorial of his intentions, placing on the top of it the stone which he knelt on while he prayed and which was stamped with the impression of his two knees. He called the place Conowee in memorial of the resuscitation of the hound and pronounced an awful malediction on the woman who has thus profanely insulted him and on her descendants and place of abode. Accursed be Balancray's people, from whom the hound was sent to me. As long as bells shall ring in steeple, as long as a man and time shall be. Accursed the black breed of the woman who served to me this filthy hound from their ivory mouths thenceforward. No man shall hear but foul impious sound. Accursed the place, behold, I strike it with my red bolt and seal its doom. May all good men forever dislike it. May it be cursed with deaf and dumb. It is believed that the malediction of the great Patrick still remains in force as the inhabitants of Ballincray are remarkable for blaspheming and it has not been since the memory of tradition without a lame, dumb or ivory-mouthed man. Uh, So we see in this St. Patrick's doing an awful lot of cursing in the National Folklore Collection. Yeah, if somebody doesn't like Ballincray... You know, nowadays you just leave a bad review on TripAdvisor, but I think that's a much, uh, much stronger. Um, no, it's pretty hardcore. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll be we'll be with them anyway. Um, How did they do in the GAA? I have no idea. We'll have to ask some of our company uh, friends. Let us know. Yeah. Contact us, please. Um, probably poorly anyway. And I think there's, there's probably a bit of, um, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's, this place is just up the road from um, Ballancree. It's just up the road from Ringville. So maybe just, you know, a bit of a Shelbyville, Springfield, Springfield thing going on there. And it does also mention that the Patrick built the the cathedral in Waterford in the end. So maybe it's a bit of a Waterford Kilkenny um, rivalry. And I don't think I suppose Waterford don't have an awful lot to be shouting about. So maybe they they can take um, take pride in the fact that Patrick gave them the cathedral instead of this Ballancree place. I really um, love the idea that the current difficulties between. Waterford and Kilkenny people around county boundaries can be traced back to <laughs> to a greyhound being served to St Patrick. I know, yeah. Well, I mean, anyway, do, 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 do you know if um, if it be the case, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't blame Patrick for cursing them. But um, it's funny that Kilkenny nowadays are called the cats rather than the. You know. <laughs> anyway. Moving on. Yeah. But anyway, hens, yeah, they were always a bit sacred in Ireland and we'll come across them again in future episodes where we'll meet the great warrior Cú Cullen, uh, the Hound of Cullen, so named because he was bound to serve the chieftain Cullen after accidentally killing his guard dog. Uh, we'll also meet uh, Finn Cool's trusty hound companions, Bran and Skjolan, uh, among others. And we're still dog mad here today, so... You won't get much sympathy if you fall under a curse for trying to serve up hound stew to a bishop. But anyway, something that leaps out of this story for me, other than the hound itself, is Patrick's role here. And it's not as an evangelizer or a priest, but as a sorcerer. And his curse is an act of spellcraft. And it's also it also says something about our attitude towards the dead. Um, the hound died unnaturally because it was killed for meat and cooked in a stew and Patrick uses his magic to restore the hound to life but has it killed again so it can be given a proper respectful burial and you know because because for those who aren't laid to rest in the correct manner and they'll come up they'll come back and haunt and terrorize the mortal realm and that's you know something that you know the Irish are obsessed by you know burial and death and doing things properly you know, and if you if you do a funeral wrong, you, you'll never hear the end of it. Yeah. That's uh, that's the truth. Yeah, you'd you'd wonder if there are hints of an older story there. Um, you know, a, a more a native pagan one, perhaps with Patrick and his comrades replacing Dree. You know, the 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 kind of magic figures um, in a tale that might have been handed down through the centuries. So Dree is is the Irish word for druid, and that that also means magician. And while we've no written sources from the pre-Christian period in Ireland, we can look at the process of Christianisation where we do have textual evidence and see how the old pagan ways persisted alongside the new for some time and in some senses blended together with the trappings of Christianity covering over uh, some older folk traditions. Um, several early Icelandic bishops, actually most famously uh, Gutskulk, the cruel. I know your Icelandic pronunciation is much better than mine, yeah, but good skulk. Good skulk. Yeah. 
are portrayed in folklore as powerful sorcerers and there are grimoires and grimoires are are books of magic where uh, quite magical powers are attributed to some of these bishops Um, and we know that folk magic persisted well into the 20th century and is undergoing a revival of sorts today Um, you see that it's really common which Instagram is absolutely massive Uh, so it's not only people going out to you know there's plenty of wells in Ireland that people will say dip your hand in that to get rid of warts and, and so on so I mean these traditions have persisted over the years yeah I mean um, was brought to a holy well myself as a, a child you know to get rid of the warts and worked we as well yeah. do an episode on that perhaps yeah definitely I'd have to try and remember where that was or just ask me dad but um, anyway there's something else interesting here that points to a possible pre-Christian origin for at least part of the story and that's the Dinshanka elements. Two places get their names as a result of the events uh, in this story and the marks of Patrick's knees and the paw prints of the Hound and Stone sound a lot like the way geographical features are often described um, like the Devil's Punch Bowl or which is a Corrie Lake on Mangerton Mountain near Killarney in County Kerry and if you're ever getting the train to Killarney from Dublin you, if you look if you look to your right, <laughs> uh, you know, you will see that um, the Devil's Punch Ball, it's, it's quite a kind of a magnificent uh, thing to look at. And um, But if this is a retelling of an older story, uh, it has been heavily Christianized. The idea of the unclean animal straight out of the Old Testament, uh, Leviticus 11, 1, 47 to be precise. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. I'm not really sure what separates a rock badger from a normal badger I'll have to look that up it's disappointing because I've always fancied a bit of rock badger <laughs> <laughs> to be honest <laughs> sounds um, delish anyway um, obviously any, a hound is neither cloven footed or chews the cud so it falls into the unclean category whereas the same prohibition in the native pagan sense would probably have been closer to prohibition on eating cows in Hinduism due to their sacred nature because especially to the warrior class hounds were definitely sacred and you can see that and you will see that in the mythology that we talk about in future episodes but anyway that's kind of conjecture on my part but it's worth pointing out that Patrick's sorcery is not necessarily in itself a signpost to pagan origins of this story um, numerous saints are associated in folklore with magic. Saint Cyprian of Antioch, also known as Cyprian the Magician or Cyprian the Mage, was particularly revered by folk magicians in Portugal, where several grimoires, all known by the name the Book of Saint Cyprian, are attributed to him. Uh, though all were probably written uh, between the 17th and 19th centuries by Portuguese peasants, sorcerers, or cunning folk. And um, Saint Nicholas of Tolentino, not the Santa Claus St. Nicholas, but apparently he took his name because he was a big fan of Santa Claus St. Nicholas, was known for communicating with the dead. But there's also a story concerning him that bears some resemblance to the one 
uh, of Patrick and the Hound, and in it, um, Nicholas, who is said to be a vegetarian, is served a dish of roasted fowl, and instead of eating it, he makes the sign of the cross, and the bird comes back to life, and he's restored to his original form. The bird is restored to its original form and flies out the window, which would have been handy if you're a vegetarian in um, going on your holidays to France in the nineties, because they it would you know serve you a little bit of meat or you know a bit of fish. You know, yeah. But anyway. Um. Yeah, so this isn't the only story of St. Patrick as a sorcerer. Uh, There is one that involves a pagan farmer selling him his most violent bull, uh, believing that the beast will kill this Christian troublemaker who has arrived in. And Patrick senses the bull's aggression and uses magic to calm it down before taking it home and butchering it and cooking it for his followers Um, And after the meal, Patrick, much like he does with the hound in the previous story, performs a miracle to bring the bull back to life and send it back to the farmer. And, of course, uh, the bull kills the farmer. There are more than enough stories from myth and folklore to do a series of Patrick on his own, but that's all we have time for today. Um, We're going to move on to other stories and myths, um, which are, you know, more about the pagan past and how it was portrayed by the scribes that first wrote it down. But today, Steph, what's it, what stood out to you from, from the stories we were looking at? They're nothing but snakes, hon. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it, the snake stuff always um, fascinated me, and I suppose we'll never get a definitive answer, but it's definitely one of those that has had uh, a big cultural impact. One of my favourite programmes when I was a, when I was a kid was um, Wanderly Wagon and it had that great villain Sneaky Snake and it was absolutely mad. I've only watched I start I watched some of them. They're all on YouTube. I watched some of them recently and God, you'd wonder what they were on now when they were writing those stories. Or maybe they just got really deep into stories from Irish mythology. You had um, Sneaky Snake was the sidekick of the villainous uh, German scientist Doctor Astro that was played by Frank Kelly. Uh, it was a brilliant character and you might know Frank Kelly as uh, he was Father Jack in uh, Father Ted but anyway um, go on yeah uh, no Wanderly Wagons a, a good a fair bit before my time no thanks but uh, no I do I get what you mean so anyway that is the end of the show for this week so thank you so much for tuning in to our first episode of the Irish Mythology Podcast Hot in the heels of Paddy's Day comes the spring equinox and we'll be turning to some topographical tales, particularly the ones involving the landscape being carved by goddesses and other female mythical figures. One such figure, on Anchalioch, the hag, uh, is associated with a site where the spring equinox was likely celebrated over 5,000 years ago and that is Loch Crew in County Meath. We'll also be talking about another feminine figure who shaped the land, the goddess Bowen, from whom the River Boyne in, that flows through County Louth and Meath uh, gets its name. And, yeah, County Meath and Louth, I think you'll find. And a bit of Kildare. Um, <laughs> Pedant, go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's very little of it in Louth. But anyway, uh, in the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at IrishMythologyP. Um, Facebook Irish Mythology Podcast Instagram Irish Mythology and you'll find show notes and other bits and pieces at irishmythologypodcast.ie 
And you can support us on our Patreon too. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us that five-star rating on iTunes. Even if you didn't, just do it. Um, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Anyway, go to me and give us a song of full. Gnari and Boherlev, See you next time on Irish Mythology Podcast. Damiano Baldoni on Creative Commons Attribution License. License details are in the show notes.